Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Late last year, the Particle Physics Project Prioritization Panel, or P5, released a report that looks to the future of particle physics in the United States. The report is called Exploring the Quantum Universe, and I'm very pleased to be joined by one of its authors, Abigail Virig, who is an astrophysicist and cosmologist at the University of Chicago. Abigail's research interests include the detection of ultra-high-energy neutrinos and precision measurements of the cosmic microwave background. Hi, Abigail. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's really nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Abigail, I, I thought we'd start um, our discussion with um, with what P5 recommends um, about uh, sort of ongoing projects. Um, and the the the, the report has recommended um, at the highest priority that the U.S. should continue to fund three of these projects. That's the, the High Luminosity Large Hadron Collider at CERN, the uh, June experiments at Fermilab, and the Rubin Observatory. So I thought we could, you know, maybe have a, a chat about these three experiments. And, um, you, you know, you could explain why, why they're so important to the future of particle physics. So the, the, the first one, the, the high luminosity um, LHC. What that means is that you would get more uh, particles per collision. So that's what luminosity is. It's the number of particles that you get per collision. Um, and getting more particles per collision allows you to make more precise measurements of the interactions of those particles. So it's really important. You know, there's sort of two ways to win in a collider. One is to smash more particles together and the other is to go to higher energies. And the next upgrade at the LHC, HLLHC, the high luminosity LHC, plans to you know, prioritize putting more particles together. And the reason you do this is so that you can make more precise measurements of things like the Higgs boson. So the Higgs boson was discovered <clears throat> about 10 years ago, and it was an amazing discovery, right? It was the discovery of you know, a particle that um, <clears throat> helps give rise, that interacts with other particles and gives rise to their masses. And that's sort of an incredible thing, right? Like the Higgs is just, it's an incredible particle. And we want to learn all we can about it. Is it, is there just one Higgs? Or is it a whole sector of particles? Um, what are its, what is its coupling to other particles? Why is its coupling to other particles so different, right? So we know that the, that its coupling to other particles is very uh, different because the other particles' masses are very different, right? And so learning why that is would be incredible. Um, so that's really some of the goals of HLLHC. I mean, I think to me, um, it's a you know it's a wide physics program, but to me, the Higgs science is in, and to the P five panel, the Higgs science is in particular quite fascinating. I see. And, and, and the second project, um, I suppose, is much closer to home for you, just outside of Chicago at Fermilab, the, the June project. And that's a, is that mostly a neutrino um, experiment? Yeah. So I live about 50 miles from Fermilab. Um, so Dune, in some sense, is right in my backyard. But in some sense, it's actually quite far away because what Dune is, is it's an experiment that takes... Uh, an accelerator at Fermilab that accelerates particles. And then you use those particles to make a neutrino beam. And then you 
shoot that neutrino beam underground about a thousand miles to a mine in South Dakota. And then you build an enormous detector to detect those neutrinos. And that's what Dune is. So in some sense, it's only 50 miles away. But actually, the detectors for the experiment are about a thousand miles away from where I live. Um, and Dune is an incredible undertaking. Dune is um, a very large project that is extremely ambitious, both technologically and on sort of the scale that it's, um, that it's going on at. And um, the main science goals of Dune is to learn about the nature of neutrinos. So learn about physics in the neutrino sector. Um, what are the masses of the neutrinos? What is the mass hierarchy of the neutrinos? Meaning, um, what's the ordering of the masses of neutrinos? Um, to learn about whether there is CP violation in the in the neutrino sector. So that's code for does matter and antimatter in the neutrino sector behave the same? Um, and then Dune also has other science goals, including measuring neutrinos from supernova. So if a supernova happens to go off nearby in the universe or in our galaxy, Dune will be an incredible machine for looking at this. You'd have to get a little lucky for that to happen, That ha but we're sort of due for one. So, um, But that would be incredible. We'd learn all kinds of things about particle physics and astrophysics uh, from that, and Dune would be well positioned for that as well. I see. And and does that does that tie in to, to, to a certain extent to your research then on because you're interested in, in neutrinos from space, aren't you? So is Dune a, an instrument that you could use? So Dune, I don't work on Dune, so the but but it is related in the sense that um, my one of my research interests is to build detectors that look for the highest energy astrophysical neutrinos. So that's a little bit more, I would say, on the astrophysics side, right? We're not I mean, there are fundamental particle physics questions you can answer with that research. But to me, it's the, the really exciting stuff is mostly astrophysics there. We're trying to learn about what are the acceleration mechanisms that make the highest energy particles in the universe and where are they coming from. But it is related to Dune in the sense that measuring neutrinos from supernova um, can tell you about supernova themselves um, and that could be related to uh, what's happening at the highest energies in the highest energy sources. I see. And and could could that detector also be used for for um, dark matter uh, detection uh, if 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 dark matter particles exist to, and and can be detected? So actually, very similar detector technology is being used to build dark matter detectors uh, deep underground in mines as well. Um, Dune is a large detector that uses liquid argon to detect neutrinos. Um, and a similar principle is being used to design uh, dark matter detectors as well. Um, I, we'll probably talk about that because some of the, you know, we in, P5, in the P5 panel, we made a recommendation to support future dark matter detectors that could have similar technology to Dune. Okay. And the, and the third... Um... The third project that's that's underway is the is the Rubin Observatory, named after um, Vera Rubin. What, what, yeah. what are the goals of that uh, program? Yeah, so the Rubin Observatory uh, used to be called LSST. So anybody who is familiar with with that acronym, that's uh, it has now been changed to the Rubin Observatory after the great Vera Rubin, one of the discoverers of dark matter. Um, so the Rubin Observatory is a survey telescope that 
uh, has begun commissioning and will begin science operations very soon in Chile. Um, it will be an extremely large uh, survey of galaxies. I mean, the thing, so the thing that the PFAS that is, um, I think, most related to particle physics, if you ask the question, what's the fundamental, why do particle physicists care about this telescope in Chile, right? Isn't that astronomy? I think that's a question you might ask. Um, the reason particle physicists care about this telescope in Chile is that one of the main science goals is to survey many, many galaxies. So to make a catalog of many, many galaxies across the sky, and not only in space, but also as a function of redshift. So you make like a 3D map of galaxies across the sky. And why is that important? It's important because with a 3D map of galaxies across the sky, that's a measure of how matter clumps over time in the universe. So as the universe is expanding and, um, and time is evolving, galaxies start uh, to form. And they're formed because dark matter is pulled into potential wells and regular matter follows the dark matter. We think we live in a, in a dark matter dominated, you know, there's more dark matter than regular matter. So the dark matter really leads the way in galaxy formation. Um, and then you end up with galaxies eventually. So if you can make maps of galaxies, not only across the space, across the sky, but also as a function of redshift, so in time, then you can make a map of the matter distribution in the universe. So why is that important? It's important because then you can learn about dark matter and its properties. And it's important because you can also learn about dark energy, which is the extremely mysterious thing that's driving the accelerated expansion of the universe. I see. And so really, it's, I suppose, is it, would you describe that as an astroparticle physics observatory or is it, would that be cosmology? Um, I, I, it's never clear to me that, you know, sort of the difference between the two. Maybe there isn't a, a, a fine line or a, 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 a strong de delineation between the two. Yeah, they're certainly related fields. So astroparticle physics is usually, uh, you know, studying particles from sources in the universe, but also people use it to talk about dark matter physics, studying mm. particle dark matter that comes from, you know, uh, the universe. Um, but I would say the main science goals of uh, the Rubin Observatory, at least on the particle physics side, there's a wide science case for Rubin Observatory that includes lots of astronomy as well. But on the particle physics side, I would call it cosmology. It's, it's the study of how the universe evolved over time and its largest scale structures, that's, that's more on the cosmology side. I see. Okay. And, and looking further into the future, P5 has recommended that the U.S. back a, a portfolio of five major projects that collectively study nearly all the fundamental constituents of the universe and their interactions. Um, your background is in astrophysics and cosmology. So I thought it would be nice, if, you know, for us to talk about three of these projects that look skywards, um, starting with the, the CMB-S4, um, which is a next, uh, well, which will be a next generation cosmic microwave background observatory. What, what are the aims of, uh, uh, of this facility? I mean, beyond, I'm guessing, getting a, a much more accurate picture of the, of the CMB than we have at the moment. Yeah. Um, so I can talk about CMBS4 for sure. I, I work on CMBS4, but I think it's important to say first that, yes, we, you know, P5 recommended continuing these exciting ongoing projects 
you know, um, HLLHC, Dune, and the Rubin Observatory, as well as some small-scale projects. And the reason we recommended moving forward with, you know, continuing support for those is because if you think about it, doing particle physics is on a vi- you have to think on a very long time scale, right? And a new P5 panel comes out every 10 or so years. And so the most, you know, it's very important to think about how to continue to, to get the, reap the best science out of the things we're already investing in. And, you know, we agree the previous P5 panel recommended exciting projects that are being built now. And so that's what, you know, HLLHC, Dune and, and Rubin are. And, and we're really looking forward to getting the science out of those in the next decade. But of course, we, as you said, have to set up have to set up for the future. So we have to figure out, you know, what what projects are the most exciting to construct right now. And and as you say, we recommended a portfolio of five projects. It's the portfolio is really broad. I think I think I've learned over the course of the last year, or at least I've come to appreciate having been on this panel, that um, the US particle physics program is really very broad. The US looks at particle physics in a very broad way. It's not just collider physics or, you know, pick your favorite piece of particle physics. We, we have a pretty broad view. And I think that comes across in the report and it comes across in our five, you know, new projects. So I'll talk about CMBS4, which was the top, the top ranked new um, project in particle physics in the US. And again, you have to ask the question, why do a bunch of particle physicists care about building a telescope, right? And how did that happen, right? Um, and, you know, I work on CMBS4, so I, I know the answer, which is that CMBS4 is an experiment that will make measurements of inflation in the very early universe. So there's this idea that in the first tiny fraction of a second after the Big Bang, like an unfathomably small fraction of a second after the Big Bang, the idea is that the universe underwent an unfathomably large expansion. And it's a kind of crazy idea, if you think about it, to, to write that down and say, yes, this must have happened um, in the very early universe. But there's good reason to believe that it might have happened, um, one of which has to do with uh, the way that the CMB looks today. And that's that if you um, build a CMB telescope and you point it at the sky, so just to take one step back, the cosmic microwave background the oldest light in the universe, it's leftover radiation from the Big Bang. Okay, so we're taking a picture of the universe um, as it approximately as it was 400,000 years after the Big Bang, so quite close to the Big Bang. So if you look at um, the cosmic microwave background on the sky, one thing that's actually kind of surprising the first time you see it is that it's extremely uniform to one part in about 100,000, the temperature of the cosmic microwave background, this, this bright source of microwaves that's coming from the Big Bang right to us today is extremely uniform. And then you have to ask the question, why is that surprising? It's surprising because if you think about the way um, the universe has evolved over time, the universe is expanding, right? And here we are sitting on Earth. And when we point our telescope um, in one direction, and, and point it around and turn it 180 degrees and point it the other direction, we see the exact same to one part in 100,000 temperature in the CMB from both sides. And this is surprising because in the history of the universe, if you don't have inflation, those photons that are coming from each side have never interacted with each other until today. 
They've been free streaming through the universe, happy as clams, but they've never um, interacted um, with each other until they hit your telescope. So the question you might ask is, how do they know to be at the same temperature? Or is that just coincidence? And physicists don't like coincidence. We don't like to chalk things up to fine tuning. So we look for an answer. And one answer is that actually the universe was extremely tiny in the first tiny fractions of a second after the Big Bang. Those photons were, you know, interacting with each other, you know, having a having a party and interacting with each other. And then inflation happened. Those photons were blown apart by the expansion of the universe. And then they free streamed until today and touched each other. So inflation solves that problem. It's called the horizon problem. It solves other problems as well. But inflation is an incredible theory. And CMBS4 um, aims to make measurements of inflation. So how do you do that? <laughs> you build an extremely precise cosmic microwave background telescope that measures, believe it or not, the polarization of the cosmic microwave background light to one part in, uh, it, we measure down to nano Kelvin fluctuations on a three Kelvin background. So that's one part in a billion. So it's an extremely precise measurement you have to make. And you look for a tiny imprint that um, inflation in the very early universe would have left behind on the cosmic microwave background. Um, and that's what CM that's why I think particle physicists are excited about CMBS4. I will say also that CMBS4 has a very broad science case as well, right? Like you build a telescope, you point it to the sky, and you measure microwave, you make a microwave map with that level of precision, you get all sorts of other things. You can measure um, the number of species of light relic particles in the early universe. You can make measurements of dark matter. Um, you can measure the masses of neutrinos, actually, because the mass of the neutrino affects how uh, matter clumps over time in the universe, which has a small imprint on the CMB as well. Um, and then there's astronomy you can do. So you can measure um, you know, when something goes boom in the millimeter wave, CMBS4 will be an the, you know, the best instrument at looking at that and combining with other astronomical observables to learn about astronomy. Okay. So that's the, 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 the cosmic microwave background, which uh, I think listeners can tell is very dear to your heart in terms of, uh, of your research. Um, you, you, also, yeah, you, you also mentioned, um, a dark, we, we also talked about dark matter earlier. And one of the, the other recommendations from P5 is the ultimate generation three or G3 dark matter direct detection experiments. Um, so so can you give us a brief description of this experiment and, and what's new with, um, with G3 compared to um, current dark matter experiments? Yeah. So um, figuring out the nature of dark matter, I would say, is one of the most important questions in particle physics today. Um, there is about five times more dark matter than regular matter in the universe. And yet, you know, we have constraints on what it could or could not be from astronomical observations. But um, it's we still don't know what it is. We really don't know. Um, and one of the um, ideas is that dark matter is a particle um, called a WIMP, a weakly interacting massive particle um, that, uh, you know, makes up the dark matter. And if a weakly interacting massive particle 
If you build a big enough detector and one of these weakly interacting massive particles comes in and hits a nucleus in your detector, and if your detector is very big and very quiet, then there's a chance that you could see the recoil. You could see effects of the recoil of this nucleus. So I think about it a bit like billiard balls, right? Like this very heavy particle comes in, hits the nucleus of this atom and, and makes things that then you can go see uh, with your very quiet and precise detector. So people have been doing this, you know, for a while because dark matter is, I think, one of the most important questions in particle physics today. And um, there's a great technique um, that that has been developed uh, that uses large cryostats of liquid uh, noble gases. So either xenon or argon, which is similar to what Dune does, right? Dune is an argon detector. So large cryostats of, um, of liquid noble gases. And then you instrument it to look for signals from this recoil, essentially. Um, these experiments are often deep underground in a mine because one of the most important things to do is to eliminate all the, the physics backgrounds that can also mimic the signal from dark matter. So you often go deep underground and then you put vetoes all around your detector so that if a particle comes in from the outside, then you can say, ah, this particle came in from the outside. It wasn't an interaction in my detector. Um, these experiments are extremely challenging uh, to control backgrounds and, you know, to, to, to build. These things are incredible. And the idea between, behind the Generation 3 dark matter detector um, is that essentially people have been figuring out how to scale up the technology, how to build bigger and bigger experiments. And we'd like to do that one more time and build the next big experiment. There's a few proposals on the table that the report was agnostic about which one, you know, which exact way to go. But it became clear to the panel that from the science case of detecting, you know, to, of searching for WIMP dark matter like this, that it was compelling and that we really had to go do it. Um, and the other thing that, that the reason why we call it the ultimate generation three dark matter detector is that there's at, at some point, if you build a big enough and uh, most you know sensitive enough detector, you get to this place that dark matter people call the neutrino fog, which sounds very um, mysterious. Yeah, I saw that in the report. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. what is the ne neutrino fog? <laughs> yeah. It does sound mysterious. It sounds very mysterious, yes. But really what the neutrino fog is, is that um, there's an irreducible background at some point. At some point, you know, you get to a low, you get to a sensitive enough measurement with a big enough detector, and you've probed as deep as you can into the cross section of dark matter particles, basically. Um, and ultimately, you hit this neutrino fog, which is where coherent neutrino scattering in the detector mimics the dark matter signal in a way that you can't distinguish, unless oh, you had okay. a directional dark matter detector, which is hard to do. So the so, neutrinos, which are really, really difficult to detect, so they become the noise because your detector yes. is so good. <laughs> that's right. So, right. Um, so that's called the neutrino fog. 
And at some point, once you start dealing with that background, unless someone comes up with a clever way to distinguish that background from the dark matter signal, like a directional dark matter detector, which is technologically extremely difficult to build, um, then, then that's where you have to stop. So that's why we called it the ultimate dark matter detector. Okay, right. I see. And, and, and the third um, astrophysics related project, I think it's, it's our favorite um, detector here at Physics World. It's, it's Ice Cube. Uh, neutrino detector, which is which is at the South Pole, and um, amazingly uses the uh, the ice um, at the South the South Pole as as part of its detection system. But I, I think in in P five you're you're recommending that the uh, a huge expansion of uh, of ice cube. Does that mean that you're going to be using much more of the of the polar ice as as part of the detection mechanism? Yeah, so IceCube uh, Gen Two, IceCube Generation Two, or IceCube Gen Two, is a proposal to do exactly that—to expand the IceCube Observatory at the South Pole um, in two ways. So one is uh, to build more sensitive um, photomultiplier tubes, which is how IceCube detects the optical emission from the particle showers in the ice from neutrinos. And so you it's drop to build those more- down. You drop those down holes in the ice, don't you? Or, or the ice yeah. cube people do, right? Yeah, yeah. you drop them down uh, two kilometer deep holes in the ice to get sort of below the bubbles and dust in the ice. And then you get down to deep, clear ice so that you can have a nice detector to work with. Um, so the idea behind Gen 2 is that you build more sensitive photomultiplier tubes and you put more of them into the ice to expand the footprint of ice cube. So IceCube is hoping to essentially expand their sensitivity by about a factor of 10 between those two things. And then the other thing, which is actually something I also work on, so I kind of wear two hats in my research life. The other thing that that IceCube Gen 2 um, is hoping to do is put a large radio array, actually, much shallower in the ice um, to work in concert with the optical detector and the, the reason you'd put a radio detector there is that um, it, it's actually the case that um, for neutrinos that are even higher energy than what IceCube has already seen. So IceCube has seen neutrinos up to about 10 PeV. And if you want to go even higher energy than that, um, it starts to make sense actually to look for the radio emission that's made by particle showers uh, made by neutrinos. So if you can do that in concert with the optical, then you can broaden the energy range of your observatory and really make a neutrino observatory that crosses across all the energy ranges that you're interested in um, and can see neutrinos across the whole spectrum. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting you, you spoke about the uh, about the radio frequency detection, because uh, I'm pretty sure about a year ago we had somebody on the podcast who is who is working on that. So I will, uh, for, for the benefit of the listeners, I'll, I'll I'll put a link to that podcast in the notes because that was uh, that was a really fascinating discussion as well. Um, cool. And I, I suppose we, you know we we can't get away with uh, without talking about future colliders, and um, and P five also stressed the importance of of developing plans uh, for those facilities, uh, facilities that ultimately succeed the the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Can you give us an idea, Abigail, of of the options that are being considered for the next big collider? 
Yeah, this was actually something you, you can imagine. So P5 is a group of 30 particle physicists. And I, you know, you heard what I work on. I, I'm not right in the center of particle physics, right? I'm a little bit sort of on one side. And this was this topic in particular was something that as we convened as a panel over and over, I just got more excited about, right? It's really fascinating and it's very exciting. And it's a huge technological and engineering challenge to build one of these instruments and a people challenge. I mean, you have to get people from all over the world to work together um, to build a project that, you know, is a global scale project. I I think it's unlikely we'll end up with multiple colliders in the future in different countries. So ultimately, we have to all work together you know, with a common vision, which is, it's just, I, I got much more excited about future collider science than I did walking in the door, not just from the science perspective, but from the technology perspective. So um, we spent a lot of time talking about this on P5, because although we were charged with making a plan for the next 10 years, you can't only just build new projects in the next 10 years. Otherwise, you won't have anything to do the 10 years after that or the 10 years after that, because you have to think about how to develop the technology now and really have the vision now so that you can construct large projects in the future. I mean, if you think about the things that we proposed to construct this decade, like CMBS4, the groundwork for CMBS4 was laid years and years ago, right? From R&D, from previous people, right? And now here we are proposing this big scale thing. Same, same for all these projects. So we'd like to set it up so that um, when, the, when HLLHC is done, the U.S. can play a leadership role in future collider development, right? And, and, and do the science, the really exciting science of going to higher energies in particular, Um in, in the future is exciting to me. So we, you know, there was a lot of press about the P5 report and something that the press really picked up on was the idea of a future muon collider. And I think they picked up on this because it's really intriguing. The idea that you could um, accelerate uh, muons in a ring and collide them um, and do this in a relatively compact footprint compared to the footprint that you'd have to uh, use for electrons, um, or, yeah, the relatively compact, compact footprint. In fact, to get to 10 uh, TeV parton center of mass, which is a technical jargon, but for people who follow that kind of thing. So to get to energy is something like 10 times more energetic than the LHC. Um, with a muon collider, you could fit it on the Fermilab campus, which is smaller than the LHC. <laughs> so, so it's a very appealing it's a very appealing technology if you can get it to work. And the reason I say if you can get it to work is there are skeptics. There are people who say, you know, a muon collider will never work. Uh, muons decay, right? And that's a problem. Um, you, they, you need to, the beam cooling that you need to achieve this is, you know, incredible. You need new magnets. I mean, it's, it's you know, but muon colliders are not, the muon collider is not the, the only forward, you know, the only option going forward. Um, we propose to invest heavily in accelerator R&D across the board because we realized when we sat down and looked at it that this is extremely important. Like you can't just fund science that's happening now. You have to fund accelerator physicists so that the next big machine can be built so we can do, you know, future exciting particle physics. So we, we um, in our 
proposed portfolio, we said that, you know, accelerator physics across the board should be funded, including things like magnet development for FCC. So that's the, that's the potential future collider uh, at CERN, uh, right? If that that's the really big one with a 90 kilometer tunnel. Yeah. So if CERN goes forward with that, um, you know, we FCC, if CERN goes forward with FCCEE, you know, we'd like to be in a position to participate in the U.S. Right. And be a leading contributor. Um, and, you know, I think looking forward to the future of building uh precision, you know, building an E plus E minus collider, an electron positron collider, so that you can do precision Higgs physics. So that's called a Higgs factory, right? That's FCCE. And then looking forward, or the ILC, and then looking forward even farther into the future, figuring out how to build a higher energy collider. That's a muon collider or FCC HH, which is be colliding hadrons uh, in that same tunnel at CERN or other options that are on the table. So I think, you know, we tried to figure out how to best spend our limited resources in the, because in, it's limited in all countries, limited resources in the U.S. to best support accelerator R&D so that we can support um, building a Higgs factory uh, in the next, you know, in, in the relatively near future, and then looking even farther into the future, building uh, a higher energy collider, including possibly a muon collider in the U.S. I mean, Look, the early career people in the U.S. are very excited about a muon collider. And the panel really, I think, picked up on that. Um, and it's that if a muon collider or any higher energy collider is ever built, I will be long retired, even though I don't, you know, I'm only mid-career. I'll be long retired. And so it's it's really up to the young people to be creative and and give them the support they need to go after the vision they want. And, and my final question, Abigail, it, it was going to be, what is the mood of, uh, of, of uh, U.S. particle physicists? But it, you, you sort of, I suppose, answered that already. It sounds like people are very positive about developing new technologies, um, you know, both in terms of colliders and, and p particle detectors and observatories. It, I mean, it sounds like there's a real buzz. Um, there was a real buzz in those meetings that you attended with P5. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we had four open meetings where we from the P, on the P5 panel where we heard from anyone who wanted to come present to us um, about their ideas um, until until everyone had get, had a chance to come present to us. And it was incredible. The wealth of ideas that came to us, the excitement people have, the ideas about everything from projects we should build to how we should support R&D or how we should should support early career people or you know workforce development there was it was all across the board um, and then when the report came out in December I will say that I I think the my feeling from the community is people are generally pretty excited I I had a colleague who told me and he's junior faculty he told me that he was sort of dreading the P5 report coming out. And then the report came out and he just sat down with his cup of coffee. And instead of the morning paper, he turned up, he opened the P5 report and he was like, and it was a great read. And now I'm so <laughs> much more excited about the next 10 years. And I don't think he's the only one. And, and that's something that, you know, I am really proud of that we put in so much work and time and thought and, a lot of people seem to be coming to, you know, 
we helped, I, I hope that we helped get people re-excited, you know, not only about their own science. It's very thrilling to see your own science through the eyes of a panel, you know, and read it and say, yes, that's really exciting. But it's also thrilling to see it's not just the thing you work on, you know, what is, why should I be excited about what the people down the hall are doing rather and not just what I'm doing and the people at the labs are doing and all around the world. So um, I hope we did that. I think we, I think we did. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you, you know, d definitely at physics world it you know, it caught our attention and um, you know, I think it, it was very interesting. I, I thought, uh, yeah, I, I suppose the thing that surprised me is, you know, all the, all the astronomy that was in there. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I wasn't expecting that, but um, it was it was very interesting to see that. Yeah, I think so. I think this part of this is um, a little bit the difference between at least what I view the focus of the European particle physics program and the U.S. particle physics program. I recently went to a meeting at, at DAISY in Germany, and I was reminded that, you know, CERN and the LHC are a really big deal in Europe, right? It, it is an enormous investment. And in the U.S., it's a very large investment, but we have our investment spread, I think, a little more um, broadly um, at, at the, you know, and, and there's a consequence to that, right? We are not hosting the LHC. So I think, I think it's a little bit, um, you know, it's pluses and minuses, but, but I'm not surprised to hear that you were surprised at the sort of cosmology that, that was in the P5 report. I bet a lot of Europeans uh, felt that way as well. And I think I think people around the world, you know, outside of the U.S. will be will be very pleased with this, you know, to see that um, that I mean, I, I don't say that, you know, that the U.S. has its mojo back with particle physics because it's always had a, a big mojo. But, uh, you know, to see the enthusiasm from the U.S., which, of course, is a, you know, the, the scientific leader. Um, I, you know, I think particle phys physicists around the world were were very pleased to see this report. Well, that's that's great. Yeah. So for our listeners, um, you can read more about the P5 report on the Physics World website. Um, just look for the headline, Influential U.S. Particle Physics Panel Calls for Muon Collider Development. And as we've learned today, much more as well. Thanks for being on the podcast, Abigail. Oh, yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Abigail Virig for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do check out the latest video on the Physics World website. It looks at nuclear-powered spaceflight. The concept has its origins in the space race that occurred in the 1960s between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and the video delves into that history. But don't think that nuclear propulsion is an idea from the past. The video also looks at two complementary approaches being developed today, nuclear thermal propulsion and nuclear electric propulsion. That video is called Nuclear Spaceflight, Igniting the Next Era of Exploration. And if that whets your appetite, there's much more on the website about nuclear-powered spaceflight.
Just look for the feature-length article by Richard Corfield called Nuclear-Powered Spacecraft, Why Dreams of Atomic Rockets Are Back On. Physics World